Welcome to episode 49 of the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast. This episode is part two in the continuing Morrissey saga, the Morrissey trilogy. Let's call this one the Maz Pyre Strikes Back. That's the Maz Pyre. Uh, that's Star Wars reference, if you didn't uh, get that. Morrissey, specifically the solo years right after the Smiths broke up, is what we're here to talk about. So let's talk about it. We left off in the last episode of the Morrissey trilogy talking about the Smiths. How they met, how they became a band, the course of the Smiths' career, and finally, how the Smiths broke up. We touched a little on Morrissey's encroaching kind of uh, shittiness, the beginning of his descent into this kind of wackadoodle right-wing pop pattern and behavior and stuff. Uh, Or is he? I, I don't know. I don't know. I wonder. He's said some things that have made me rethink using such a broad brush to paint the picture of Mr. Stephen Patrick Morrissey. Let's get a little deeper into Morrissey, specifically the solo years the music, and, and just a little bit about the man himself. Who were the people in the band behind Morrissey during the solo years? I don't know. I don't know. Who was writing the songs for Morrissey now that Johnny Marr is out of the picture? Good question. Good question. What records came out during the solo years and what hit songs came out of the solo years time period? Yeah, this question. Well, as far as the records go, uh, holy shit, there are a bunch. I think 13 in total from the time after the Smiths broke up until now. The hits, the big hits, were really mostly from 1988 until 2004. That's when most of the really memorable and great Morrissey songs that I can think of came out. Let me rattle a few of those songs off to you right now. Suedehead, Last of the Famous International Playboys, You're the One for Me, Fatty, First of the Gang to Die, Every Day is Like Sunday. There's a big list of hits for sure that go from 88 to 04, so many fucking great songs, seriously. After that kind of comeback record in 2004, the You Are the Quarry, eh, not so much. We'll talk a little bit about that. Just we're going to focus a lot more on, as far as the music goes, the years of 1988 to 2004, that time period. So I would say 88 to 04, those were kind of the glory days of the Morrissey solo stuff. I think, I think so for sure. To be fair... I have been listening to the brand new record that came out in April 2020. I am not a dog on a chain is its title. And uh, it's pretty good. It's not bad. I mean, yeah, it's not great. It's not great. It's not on par with the 88 to 04 era of Morrissey solo stuff. But it has some songs that are pretty good. There's not a lot of very traditional sounding Morrissey songs on this record. A lot of the melodies kind of those hooks that are the Smiths and Morrissey's trademarks, they're there in a couple of songs and a few. I've listened to that whole record maybe three times or so in the last week. I would advise you to check it out, see what you think, decide for yourself. I do kind of like it. I might actually buy that record like on vinyl, you know, just to have it and listen to it every once in a while. It's not too bad. It really isn't not Morrissey's strongest work, not his worst work. It's, It's okay, though. It's okay. Speaking of music, the music in this Morrissey Part 2 episode, that very first song was a song called Me Versus Morrissey in the Pretentiousness Contest by a Wilhelm Scream. Thank you, Trev, for letting me use the song. I do appreciate it. Not a Morrissey or Smith's cover, but very appropriate for this episode, I would say for sure. Me Versus Morrissey in the Pretentiousness Contest. Yes, indeed. <laughs> That's a fucking great song title, by the way. 
Good job, a Wilhelm scream and Trev. I appreciate that. That's awesome. Right after part one, kind of in the interlude between part one and part two, you will hear the song Make a Circuit with Me. That is a cover of the song by the Polecats. This version of the song is by the Phenomenauts of Oakland, California. Polecats? Uh, I thought this episode was about Morrissey. Uh, Bob? Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. Uh, right, yeah, I know. I'll throw that in there. The thing is, the song fits very well. Trust me, you will see. I'm going to leave that for a little surprise later, okay? The very last song of this episode at the very, very end is a cover of the song Last of the Famous International Playboys by Jay Church. Yes, the mighty Jay Church. Thank you, Ben Snakepit, for letting me play that song. Brad, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. The music in this episode is really good. It's fucking tight. I love it. I'm very happy about it. One quick disclaimer before I move on to the actual episode itself. I do love Morrissey's solo music and the Smiths, but I really, really love Morrissey's solo stuff. So much of the solo stuff are some of my very favorite songs of all time. For real. I'm totally, totally serious. I am going to talk shit about Morrissey in this episode. I gave a disclaimer in episode one of this trilogy. I'm going to give it again. Much briefer, my shit-talking comes from a position of love, not hate. Also, I'm not going to get too much into Mr. Morrissey's personal life in this episode. That I'm saving for the final episode, episode three of the Morrissey Trilogy. Kind of questions like, is Morrissey really celibate, as the rumors would have it? Or had he been? Is he still? I don't know. Where does Morrissey stand on animal rights? Uh-huh. Why do so many Latinx people love Morrissey so much? Hmm. Well, we're gonna get, we're gonna take a look at that in episode three. That's a future. This is now. Let's talk about Morrissey in 1988 and on from there, shall we? Yes, we shall. First, a few words from our friends at Gravebound Clothing. Then we'll get to part one of this episode. Stay tuned. <laughs> Gravebound Clothing is the brand you've been looking for to help you look your best. From simple designs like the Gravebound logo t-shirt, long sleeve shirt, beanie, and snapback hats to the GOAT or greatest of all time design, Gravebound has the goods for you. T-shirts, long sleeves, zip-up hoodies, beanies, snapback hats, Gravebound has it all. Check out the Council of the Doctors shirt. This one is my new personal favorite from Gravebound and is very timely, I might add. See for yourself. Visit Gravebound Clothing on the web at www.graveboundclothing.com. Gravebound Clothing is also on Facebook and Instagram, so check it out. New designs are coming soon, so keep your eyes peeled for some more awesome Gravebound goods coming your way. Don't delay. Check out Gravebound Clothing today. Thank you to Graybound Clothing for the words and your support of the Bobcast. I appreciate it. They make rad stuff. Check them out. Check them out for sure. Between 1988 and the first Morrissey solo record up to 2004, a bunch of Morrissey records were released, which are the following. 1988 had Viva Hate, 1991 Kill Uncle, 1992 Your Arsenal, 1994 Box Hall and I, 1995 Southpaw Grammar, 1997, Maladjusted, and finally in 2004, You Are the Quarry. Seven records in 16 years, that's not too bad. That's a lot of records. 
That's almost a new record every two years, right? Something like that. There was a gap between Maladjusted and You Are the Quarry of seven years. And note that a lot of people said, a lot of critics and whatever, said that You Are the Quarry was somewhat of a comeback record for Morrissey. Uh, that's a great fucking record. I love, I love You Are the Quarry. It's a fucking great record. Songs like Irish Blood, English Heart, First of the Gang to Die, We're on You Are the Quarry. There you go. I don't know what that tells you. That tells me a lot. That record's really, really good. I love it. When did Morrissey begin his solo career exactly, though? Well, let's go back to the end of The Smiths for a minute. It's sort of like a refresher from part one of this series. That'll kind of help establish the start of Morrissey as a solo performer, or solo act. Johnny Marr quit The Smiths in July of 1987. And that more or less was the end of The Smiths for all purposes. The Smiths tried to carry on for a little bit. It really didn't work. They had a different guitar player person. Yeah, just didn't really work. Sometime between July and the release of Strange Ways Here We Come in September of 1987, the Smiths called it quits for good. Morrissey, however, wasn't just sitting around waiting for the Smiths to break up. He had been working with a producer named Stephen Street for several months before the Smiths finally broke up on some of his own solo stuff. Now, who was Stephen Street? Morrissey knew Stephen Street from his work with the Smiths as an engineer on the record The Queen is Dead and also as a producer on Strange Ways Here We Come. What else did Stephen Street do? He produced stuff for Blur, The Cranberries, eventually after The Smiths and Morrissey, and Kaiser Chiefs. Yeah, hmm. Cran the Cranberries and Morrissey were probably the most successful production jobs that Stephen Street did. Although, do note, he did some other stuff. He did stuff for The Psychedelic Furs, The Pretenders, The Promise Ring. Yes, emo kids, do you remember The Promise Ring? Uh, New Order and Madness. Yeah, the dude's kind of, he's kind of big time. He is kind of big time. So Stephen Street and Morrissey are working together on Morrissey's first solo record, Viva Hate, starting in September of 1987. Stephen Street is listed in the album's credits as wearing quite a few different hats, bass, guitar, songwriter, and producer, while Morrissey is listed as vocals, lyricist, and album art. Ooh, Morrissey. Morrissey apparently did have a big, big, big thing about art for the record covers. Like he was a stickler for it being just the way he wanted it. He really was. There, yeah, there's so many weird little details about that. I'm not really going to get into, but yeah, Morrissey was big. Big enough he had to list himself in the credits of the record as him designing or coming up with the album art. Yeah, interesting, right? Yeah, he's an interesting dude. He really is. Well, another fellow by the name of Vinnie Riley is listed on the record Viva Hate as guitarist as well as Stephen Street. Huh, what's that about? Who, who's who's Vinnie Riley? Who was Vinnie Riley? He, he was some dude that played guitar. He was in some bands. He did some stuff. Playing guitar with Morrissey would have to be Vinnie Riley's big claim to fame, I, I, I guess, I suppose. Stephen Street knew Vinnie Riley from working with him in Vinnie Riley's band, Duritty Column. Yes, they were kind of a big deal to some guy that worked at some record store somewhere. One of those kind of bands, like kind of like King Crimson. Not to talk shit on King Crimson, but you know, all you fucking record store people seem to love that band and everybody else is like, what the fuck did I just listen to? Is that like cats fighting? Was that like some fucking drunk dude playing a little recorder or some shit? I don't, I don't know. That's the kind of band Duretti Column is, I, I, I think. Stephen Street brought in a drummer for Viva Hate named Andrew Peresi, and there you go. There's the record Viva Hate. That record was recorded between September and December of 1987 
And Stephen Street says it was a total pain in the ass to record. Working with Morrissey, specifically, Stephen Street said, oh my god, like he, the guy was just fucking almost intolerable to work with. You know, he said Morrissey's always demanding, wants to rush, rush, rush everything. Like, when's this record going to come out? It needs to come out now. We Let's go. We, we need to get this done. Quick, quick. Let's get it out. They didn't even have all the songs written for Viva Hate when they first went into the studio in September, and they finished it before Christmas. That's quite an undertaking if you're doing a full-length record, and you don't even have all the songs written. And also consider Viva Hate's a really fucking good record. It's really good. It is solid. They didn't even have everything done, all the songs written, before they went in the studio. So, yeah, that's pretty gnarly. So between Stephen Street and Morrissey and Vinnie Riley, they wrote, recorded all those songs in a very short period of time. Here's where things do start to get kind of a little bit dodgy. Ooh, ooh well, you know, one thing, ooh, I got to mention this. At one point during the process of writing and recording Viva Hate, Morrissey sent Stephen Street a letter saying, hey, I want Mike Rourke and Andy Joyce. Do you remember them? Yes. The rhythm section of the Smiths, the bassist and drummer of the Smiths. Morrissey said at one point he wanted them on this record. Then apparently Morrissey changed his mind and said, no, 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 I don't want to work with him. Stephen Street's going, oh, fuck. Okay, well, I already got these other guys all lined up. And okay, 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 fine, fine. Stephen Street said in an interview that Morrissey felt it wouldn't really be a solo Morrissey thing with three quarters of the Smiths involved. And I kind of concur. That would be like the Smiths without Johnny Marr. Like, okay, what kind of record would that be? Well, it'd be the Smiths without Johnny Marr. So there you go. Rourke and Joyce did, however, come back after Viva Hate was recorded and released. And they recorded two songs with Morrissey, Last of the Famous International Playboys and Interesting Drug. So there's that. Those are both fucking great songs. I love both those songs so, so much. Let's get back to Stephen Street and Vinnie Riley, though. Stephen Street has credit for writing songs, playing bass and guitar on Viva Hate. Riley has credit for guitar and keyboards on Viva Hate. After Viva Hate came out, Vinnie Riley claimed that those street songs were crap. I had to rewrite them. Do you like that Cockney accent? Yeah, that was, uh, I know, that was pretty good. Yeah, you're welcome. Stephen Street claims, however, this is untrue, and Stephen Street actually has diary entries that he recorded during the Viva Hate sessions that back him up, that back up his statement that no, Vinnie Riley didn't write these songs, Street did. Yeah, there you go. Vinnie Riley also heard a demo version of Every Day is Like Sunday and said, I'm not playing that song, it's too bloody simple. What a fucking moron. Every Day is Like Sunday? That song's fucking fantastic. That's a huge, huge hit. The Vinnie Riley, to me, seems like this weird guitar prima donna person who is also probably not the nicest or smartest person in the entire world ever. I, I don't know. I don't know. Apparently, though, Vinnie Riley was hired by Stephen Street to more or less just flesh out the guitar parts, make them more full, make the guitar sound really good for songs that Stephen had already written himself. Vinny Riley was a super good guitar player, truly. Like, he really was, no shit talking there. The guy truly was a very, very good guitarist. Well, Vinny Riley says he had to rewrite the songs and that Morrissey was the one that hired him, and neither of those things are true. Hmm, there you go. A little drama right out of the starting gate here. It seems like maybe Vinny Riley had some ego issues, do you think? I kind of think so. Whatever. Viva Hate is a fucking, it's a great record. It really is really, really good. 
Every day is like Sunday, Suede Head, Margaret on the guillotine, and the U.S. version of that record had a bonus track, Hairdresser on Fire. Yeah, quick note, by the way, the song Margaret and the Guillotine was about killing Margaret Thatcher, essentially, more or less, and Margaret Thatcher was one of the most evil people to ever walk the surface of this earth. Oh my God. Morrissey even got investigated by the British version of the FBI for that song. Yeah. Fuck Margaret Thatcher. She was a horrible, horrible person. She was England's or Great Britain's version of Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Fuck both of them. I'm sure hell has them both in the same like infernal suite of assholes. <sighs> Viva Hate was released in March of 1988, six short months after the final Smiths record, Strange Ways Here We Come, and reached number one on the UK album charts. Morrissey started strong after the end of the Smiths. He really did, I would say. All was not well, however. All was not well. Besides Vinnie Riley and Stephen Street arguing about who did what on the record, Street wasn't happy about his royalty percentage for Viva Hate, saying he deserved more. I mean... Looking at this, it really looks like Stephen Street did write most of the songs on this record. Yeah, I think he really did, and Street had to argue with Morrissey about getting paid more for his work on the record. He did get that money eventually after months and months of fighting, I guess, but that tarnished Morrissey's image of him, this fighting for more money. So goodbye, Stephen Street. Goodbye, Vinnie Riley. Yep, no more relationship or association with Morrissey. Before Street and Morrissey's relationship ended, and soon after Viva Hate, they did record a couple singles, like I was kind of referring to earlier, Last of the Famous International Playboys and Interesting Drug. Those are both fucking great songs, like I was saying. Now, Street is gone. Benny Riley is fucking complaining about some shit on somebody else's record somewhere. Who cares about that, dude? What's next? The next record in Morrissey's solo arsenal of records, a compilation album, rather than an album of all new songs, 1990's Bona Drag. Most of the songs on Bona Drag were previous singles and B-sides. Two of them came off of Eva Hate, Suedehead, and Every Day is Like Sunday. And there was a single that coincided with the release of Bona Drag, Piccadilly Palaire. Notable about Bona Drag? Bona Drag marked a turning point for Morrissey, where he was becoming a little bit less popular in the UK and more popular in the United States. Okay, I, you know what? I don't want to get too bogged down in this is what happened, record by record, like detail, detail, detail. That's kind of a bit too much. But we'll just talk a little bit about each of the records and two more key people in Morrissey's musical life after Bona Drag. Before these people, though, the album Kill Uncle came out in 1991, and nobody gave a shit. Yeah, it's not worth talking about. I'm sorry. I mean, Kill Uncle sold 60,000 records in the United Kingdom, and... 221,000 records in the USA. That is a tiny, tiny number of record sales for a Morrissey record. It really, it like, wow. I read that and I thought, holy shit, really? Did anybody even know that that record was out then? No, I think it was just kind of a really bad record. I I listened to it. And it no, I'm, no, I'm not a fan. No, I really don't. I'm sorry. Who cares, though? Let's get to the good stuff. After Kill Uncle came out, Morrissey was gearing up to go on tour and he needed a band to play on this tour. Two people that joined that band were Boz Borer and Alan White. Now, Martin Boz Borer was most well-known for playing guitar in the British rockabilly sensation, The Polecats. Do you remember that song, uh, Make a Circuit With Me? Yep, Boz Borer did that, or he, he was part of it. Boz Borer has been with Morrissey since 1991. 
And he does play guitar on some of the songs on the brand new 2020 Morrissey record, I'm Not a Dog on a Chain. That's fucking crazy. He's been with Morrissey forever. Alan White was with Morrissey from 1991 until around 2009. And Alan White has 80 shared songwriting credits with Morrissey. Wow, that's a lot. That's a ton, a ton of songs. Those two guys, they spent a very, very long time with Morrissey. It is said those two influenced Morrissey's sound, making the sound of Morrissey's songs lean more towards rockabilly and kind of jangle pop and leading to revitalizing his career. I, I would kind of agree. I can see why. After Kill Uncle, Morrissey did need help. He really did. I don't think that's a good record. Here comes 1992's Your Arsenal. Songs like You're the One for Me, Fatty, We Hate It When Our Friends Become Successful, are on Your Arsenal. That is a great record. I really, really do like that record as well. 1994 saw the release of Vauxhall and I, and the songs were all written by either Boz Bohr or Alan White. It shows. That is a fucking great record. Now My Heart is Full. The more you ignore me, the closer I get. Real Great songs. Really good stuff. The next record out was Southpaw Grammar. That was released in 1995. Again, Alan White, Boz Bohr. Maladjusted was the last Morrissey record for a while, and that was released in 1997. Southpaw Grammar and Maladjusted, I don't want to get too much into those records. We'll keep going. Nothing too remarkable at them. They're okay. They're okay, but nothing super remarkable. At some point between 1997 and 2004, Morrissey moved from the UK to Los Angeles, and he didn't do a lot in that time. He kind of toured a little. He was in a documentary called The Importance of Being Morrissey. He said he was writing an autobiography at the time. 2004, now that was a good year for the Moz. In 2004, the record You Are the Quarry came out. Machine Gun Toting Morrissey on the record cover. Yes, that is a big record. It was the first new full-length record in seven years for Morrissey. Irish Blood, English Heart, I Have Forgiven Jesus, First of the Gang to Die, Let Me Kiss You. Those are my standout songs on that record. First of the Gang, that, that is probably my favorite Morrissey song out of all of the Morrissey songs. Smiths and Morrissey's. That's a I love, love, love that fucking song. Morrissey, Alan White, and Boz Borer share songwriting credits on all but one song on this record. Again, the White Borer Morrissey team comes through with flying colors. Morrissey and the band toured from April of 2004 until November of 2004 in support of that record. And oh, holy shit, that's crazy. Eight months, a solid eight months tour. That, no wonder the guy calls in sick to shows all the time now. He's still fucking burnt out from that eight-month-long tour. Jeez, yeah, I don't blame him. I really don't. You Are the Quarry was a comeback record for Morrissey, and I believe he did come back very strong on that record. Speaking of coming back, let's hear a song now, and let's hear a few words from one of this episode's sponsors, Pomp's Not Dead Pomade. The song is a cover of the Polecats song, Make a Circuit With Me, as performed by Oakland, California's The Phenomenauts. We're talking about Boz Borer, remember? Yep. I know it's not a Morrissey cover. It's a great song. And if you've forgotten how that song goes, now you're going to remember it. There you go. Stay tuned. Here are a few words from Pomp's Not Dead Pomade and then the song. Do you have problem hair? Baby humidity is making wavy, frizzy hair an issue in your life. Do you have dry and lifeless hair? Or do you just like to look your best? 
If any of those things are concerns of yours, let me present you with the solution. Pomp's Not Dead Pomade, yes, Pomp's Not Dead Pomade, can tame the waviest, frizziest hair, can breathe new life into the driest of hair. Pomp's Not Dead Pomade was founded in 2012 by Edwin Carson at his home in Houston, Texas. Growing up listening to punk rock and hardcore, Edwin takes inspiration from his favorite bands and ties them into his products. Pomp's Not Dead Pomade is homemade in small batches to ensure the highest quality pomade that money can buy. With pomade varieties such as Shea Halud, a water-based medium to firm hold pomade, to my favorite, Jet Set Alexa, a medium hold oil-based pomade, you can't go wrong when choosing Pomp's Not Dead Pomade for your hair management needs. Where can you purchase this fine pomade? I am glad you asked. Simply go to the Pomp's Not Dead website at www.pompsnotdeadpomade.com and click on the products button to browse the selection of pomades or you can go to www.etsy.com and search for Pomp's Not Dead Pomade to browse the Etsy shop. Either way, you'll be looking good in no time with Pomp's Not Dead Pomade. Welcome back. 
Thanks again to Pomps Not Dead Pomade for their support of the Bobcast. And thanks to the Phenomenauts for letting me use the song. Uh, specifically, a huge thanks to Avi of Silver Sprocket in San Francisco. Avi has something to do with managing the Phenomenauts and gave me the okay to use the song. Yeah, rad. Silver Sprocket Bicycle Club, by the way, is a rad independent bookstore and more located in San Francisco. The retail location is closed as of right now, as of May of 2020, but you can go on the Silver Sprocket website and order some truly rad comics, books, t-shirts, so, so much more. Art, check it out. www.silversprocket.net. Morrissey after the year 2004. Here's a list of the records that Morrissey put out after the fantastic, wonderful record, You Are the Quarry. 2006 had Ringleader of the Tormentors. 2009 had Years of Refusal. 2014 had World Peace is None of Your Business. It's an odd record title, isn't it? 2017 had Low in High School. And 2019, California Sun, which was kind of a covers record. And 2020, I Am Not a Dog on a Chain. I'm not going to go through this era record by record. Uh, you know, I kind of did that in part one for the years 1988 through 2004. I hope that wasn't too boring. I'm sorry, that was a little boring maybe. It was a little boring writing it. I hope it wasn't too boring with what I was doing there. Those 1988 through 2004 years were great, great, great years for Morrissey's music. And I feel like they needed some attention. Yeah, that's it. 2006 up until now, eh, uh, I don't really feel like any of those records stand out for me personally. I, I will say this, though, since we've been talking a little bit about Alan White and Boz Bohr as being writers of songs with Morrissey, Alan White got sick in 2004 and had to completely bail and stop touring with Morrissey, and Alan White was replaced by someone named Jesse Tobias. Alan White never went back to touring, though he did continue to work with and write songs for Morrissey up until 2009. Tobias has songwriting credits on several Morrissey records from 2006 up till now and has been a member of Morrissey's band since around 2004. Morrissey, he is able to work with some people. Apparently, it looks like it. Alan White, Jesse Tobias, Boz Bohr, they're proof of that. They're all very long-time collaborators of Morrissey's. Oh, oh, but by the way... Jesse Tobias was in the Red Hot Chili Peppers for a hot minute in 1993 until the Chili Peppers kicked him out in favor of massive douche and not a very good human being, Dave Navarro. Actually, I don't know if he's not a good human being. He just seems like a douche yeah, to me. Well, good for him. I'm glad Tobias got out of that band. Uh, I, I'd personally rather eat dog shit than be associated with the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Personally, yeah. Like, <coughs> yeah, yuck. Uh, another person named Gustavo Manzur appears in songwriting credits on some of the kind of newer Morrissey records. I didn't bother looking into him, really. Uh, he was kind of like, whatever. Boz Bohr, though, he is still around. He still plays guitar with Morrissey to this day. On the brand new record, 2020's record, he's still there. He's still playing guitar. Let's talk about something a little bit more interesting than just music and records and the musicians around Morrissey. As I kind of said back at the beginning of this episode, I'm not going to get too much into the personal side of Morrissey on this one. I would like, though, to talk about something that has kind of dogged Morrissey for years and years and years. Going back to the Smiths, his relationship with the press. Morrissey versus the press. Yes, <laughs> this part gets fucking stupid. 
Oh, here we go. Yeah, this is where it kind of gets good. In 2017, Morrissey did an interview with a German news magazine or German news outlet called Der Spiegel, in which he said some pretty shitty things. Yeah, truly pretty shitty. Morrissey accused politicians of undermining national identities by spreading multiculturalism. He claimed that some of the people claiming to be sexually assaulted via the hashtag MeToo movement were not rape victims, but were simply disappointed. Uh huh. A few other things as well. When the interview ran, when they actually, Der Spiegel actually ran this interview, Morrissey was pissed because it made him look bad. It really did make him look bad. Morrissey came back and said the interview was edited to purposefully make him look bad. What to do? What to do if you're Morrissey in that situation? Well, Morrissey threw a tantrum, said the Der Spiegel interview was going to be his final print interview ever. I'm never talking to the press again. Never, ever. Well, Der Spiegel responded to these allegations of being fake news and, and fucking editing his shit by publishing the unedited audio of the interview on their webpage, which literally confirmed that Morrissey said all the shitty things that he was presented as saying. So yeah, oh boy, there you go. There was no trickery, no editing magic there. It was just the raw audio of the interview, and Morrissey did say some really, truly horrible, horrible things. After that, Morrissey did an interview on his own website since he wasn't talking to the press anymore. That was in April of 2018, and the interview was conducted by someone named John Riggers, R-I-G-G-E-R-S. I do want to say this real quick, though. To be clear, I'm not referencing the interview that was done by Morrissey's nephew, Sam S.D. Rayner, that is also on Morrissey's website, the www.morrisseycentral.com. That interview is from 2019. Well, anyway, who the fuck is this John Riggers guy, and why does his last name sound surprisingly like a racial slur? Was that some kind of weird thing that Morrissey was throwing out there to, like, fuck with the press, to fuck with people? Huh, maybe. Nobody really knows who this John Riggers fellow is. You can't find shit about this person on Google at all. Trust me, I couldn't. And other people that have searched for this John Riggers person have said... Yeah, he, on Google, he, this person has no footprint, no, yeah, I don't know. The thought is that John Riggers is actually Morrissey himself. Yeah, fucking Morrissey made up this name and interviewed himself for his own website because, you know, he can't, he can't trust the press anymore because all they do is drag his name through the mud or something like that. I don't know for sure, but yeah, he made up this fucking persona with a last name that sounds really, really very highly like a racial slur to boot. I think he did it just to fuck with everybody. Oh boy. Morrissey. Well, well, let's, let's take a little tidbit from this, uh, John Riggers interview. Here it is. John asks a question. Your last album was dedicated to Dick Gregory. Yet a question of racism has always chased you through the press. Morrissey's answer People accuse, yes, but they can't penetrate or illuminate. The sole point of all these enemy slurs was to turn my audience against me. I recall one enemy piece many years ago, which addressed its readers with, We can't just turn them off, can we? That said it all. I can't do the Morrissey voice anymore. I'll just carry on with my own voice. And as far as racism goes, the modern loony left seemed to forget that Hitler was left wing. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, fuck. That's me. I almost choked. Jesus Christ. But of course, we are all called racist now. 
and the word is actually meaningless. It's just a way of changing the subject. When someone calls you racist, what they are saying is, hmm, you actually have a point, and I don't know how to answer it, so perhaps if I distract you by calling you a bigot, we'll both forget how enlightened your comment was. Yeah, Morrissey, um, you can shove that statement straight up your ass. Oh, boy. Looney left and Hitler was left wing. It's almost like at this point, like, honestly, I don't want to anymore. I don't want to talk about this fucking guy anymore. What an asshole. Like, what a fucking asshole for saying that, right? Like, it's so fucking stupid. Oh, boy. By the way, Dick Gregory, Dick Gregory was a very, very interesting person. He was an African-American man that was born in 1932 and passed in 2017. Read about him. I'm not going to go into details about him, but the dude did some really, really rad stuff. Big part of the civil rights movement. He was a stand-up comic that like mocked racism, etc. And he was also a conspiracy theorist that thought the moon landings were fake. Oh, fucking shit. Yeah. Well, he, good guy. Some weird things about him. That's me kind of a, a painting Dick Gregory with a br- very broad brush as well. Check him out on your own. I, I'm going to. He's a very interesting guy for sure. He did some great stuff. I don't want to tarnish his image by telling tales out of school about his conspiracy theories. Okay. So there's Morrissey's last interaction with the press, you know, the Der Spiegel thing, then his own interview, then um, this John Riggers fellow and his nephew. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, when did Morrissey first have issues with the press? It looks to me like it goes back to the days of the Smiths. The first negative mention I can find of the Smiths or Morrissey is from 1983 when an article in The Sun, which is a British tabloid, alleged that the song Handsome Devil endorsed pedophilia. Then there was the controversy of the song Suffered Little Children and the press saying the song glorified the Moors murders of the 1960s, which I kind of talked about and explained in the Morrissey Part 1 episode, if you do remember that. On and on. The press could get really, really shitty with Morrissey, for sure. There's no doubt about that. Especially concerning his sexuality, or lack thereof. That Morrissey publicly claimed in the years that he was in the Smiths that he was celibate. The press fucking hounded him about it. Are you gay? Uh, are you a frustrated heterosexual? Are you bisexual? Morrissey himself stated in 1980 that he and his girlfriend were bisexual, but that he hated sex. That We'll talk a little bit about Morrissey's sexuality in the next episode, just a little bit. I think it's Morrissey's business. It's no one else's. It's not mine. Really, who cares? That isn't the sum of Morrissey. His sexuality does not make Morrissey, I don't believe. Well, the press did really care about Morrissey's sexuality. And after being asked repeatedly by the press if he were gay, this was Morrissey's response in 1985. I don't recognize such terms as heterosexuality, homosexuality, bisexuality, and I think it's important that there's someone in pop music who's like that. These words do great damage. They confuse people, and they make people feel unhappy, so I want to do away with them. Well, bravo. Bravo, Morrissey. I get that. I respect that. Yes, good on you, Morrissey, for sure. So there's Morrissey's relationship with the press from the very, very early years of his fame. They were on this poor guy's butt every chance they got about whether or not he was gay, whether he was a pedophile, bisexual, whatever. I I understand the press can be rough, especially when you're kind of a private person like Morrissey says he is, or some people have said Morrissey is. I do think, though, Morrissey kind of likes the attention. I do think he does, in a way, 
I think Morrissey revels in all kinds of attention. Honestly, for a supposedly very private person, he says some really far out shit and kind of always has. And then he gets mad when he gets called out on it. He's dramatic. Morrissey is a very dramatic person, I believe. He has sued press outfits in the past. He fucking hated NME. Now, that was a British magazine, now mostly a website called NME or New Musical Express. He hated them for a long time. In fact, he sued them for libel in 2007 and settled out of court after NME issued a public apology for an article that supposedly claimed Morrissey was a racist. Um, yeah, I think he is a little racist. Yeah, just a, a little. Uh, I think Morrissey is racist. Well, the list of altercations between the press, especially the British press, is very long. Too long to go into here any further. That kind of touches on some of the issues between the press and Morrissey. For now, I think that's all we're going to talk about. That's going to do it for me. Let's wrap this one up. Hopefully you learned something you didn't know about Morrissey and his solo stuff in those years. I did. I did for sure. There's a lot more in there that I didn't touch on in the interest of time, more or less. But I think we got most of the good stuff or most of the stuff I really wanted to get across did come through on this one. The next episode is going to focus much more on Morrissey, the man himself, not so much the music. That's when things are going to get really very, very interesting. I hope this one wasn't too dry for you. Uh, I really do. I know it was a lot of kind of statistics and and facts and things like that. Well, just wait till episode three. We'll see how that one goes. I'm going to leave you with one last song, a cover of the song, Last of the Famous International Playboys by the band J Church. This is a fucking great cover, one of my personal favorite Morrissey songs. I hope you enjoy it. And thank you very much to Mr. Ben Snakepit for letting me use the song. Yes, thank you for listening, by the way. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the Bobcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd really appreciate it. Here's Jay Church with Last of the Famous International Playboys. Mm-hmm.